It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. You know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I, I don't sit yeah. in control room. They're answers that only can come from Victoria, I'm afraid, because that's not my job. But I ain't spending any time, because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Well, g'day and welcome, uh, listeners, to The Two Jacks. It's episode 30 of our combination episodes. I think we've been doing, we've done a couple of hundred of these, Jack, but this is what we uh, the, the, this particular podcast that we've done 30 episodes of now or coming on the 30th is uh, where we look at things around the world and come back to Australia uh, in a combination Australia and the world podcast. Joining me as usual is Hong Kong Jack. G'day, mate. How are you? G'day. I'm well. Uh, and how are things in Hong Kong? There's been uh, been a few arrests over uh, a bit of uh, match fixing, Jack. There has. Um, I think about 23, um, uh, sorry, 23 people, including a coach and 11 players from First Division football here in Hong Kong. Now, you've got to bear in mind, there is a Hong Kong Premier League above that. So it's it's sort of semi-pro, you know, a bit, a bit, a bit above park football. Um, uh, yeah. have been arrested because apparently there is a, an illegal betting uh, on, going on on these matches. Um, and um, the fix was in. The fix, is, the fix was in, and we've seen this in lower-level soccer a fair bit. In Australia, there was a, there was a, a match-fixing exercise put together by a Victorian soccer league team, not at the top echelons, but at the lower echelons. Can you imagine having a bet on a, on a game of basically park football? Uh, you can walk into the jockey club here um, on a, uh, a weekend, the jockey club being the, the betting agency. Um, we, we only have one legal betting medium in Hong Kong, which is run by the Hong Kong Jockey Club. And, uh, and you will find bunches of guys sitting around watching a telecast of, say, the, uh, the Mariners, um, uh, uh, the Central Coast Mariners, um, uh, playing, you know, um, I don't know, the Adelaide Wellington, team. whatever yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I can tell you, none of the people watching it would be able to find Gosford on a map. Um, uh, and and they're betting up big on, on a um, uh, Australian soccer match. So uh, they'll bet on anything, uh, it's fair to say, and not just in Hong Kong, but in uh, around, uh, around a fair bit of Asia. So you can, if you can fix what's really a minor match somewhere, um, you can be in the money. Yeah, that's what I mean. So at the top level, it's a lot harder to do to uh, to get people involved in match fixing. I mean, we don't need to go all the way to Premier League, but uh, where players are being paid, you know, half a million dollars a week, um, <laughs> they're not likely to be bribed. But when we get down to the, the 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 smaller efforts, and I'm not going to even put in the A League in there, you might uh, you might be talking about the Central Coast Mariners and. And others, but when we get into the lower leagues, that's when these things can happen because it's very easy to bribe players who are not earning a lot of money. Uh, the bribe levels: um, some of the players were being paid up to ten thousand Hong Kong dollars a match. That's uh, two thousand Aussie. It's not much, is it? It's no. not much. Uh, I mean, and the penalties that are coming their way, that may come their way, we've only got charges being laid at this stage, but the penalties coming their way means they won't be playing soccer. They're, they're chosen football code for a very, very long time, if ever again. Uh, unless they're playing um, in, the, uh, in the side out at uh, Stanley Jail. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it's just a, a constant reminder that uh, sport, particularly at the lower levels, can be fixed quite easily. Um, and uh, I, I suspect the bookies would be sitting in a hotel room with uh, their, their very own servers and offering prices all over the place uh, from uh, hotel rooms that they can quickly uh, quickly escape from if the wallop is on, on their way. Mm. Somewhere in Southeast Asia, I would suspect, Jack, mm. in a hotel in Southeast Asia with a lot of computer equipment and a lot of screens. Now, Jack, uh, we're going to move uh, to Australia s- straight away today. Um the Pricewaterhouse Coopers business, Jack. They were particular. They were advising uh, the Federal Treasury uh, on um, uh, on tax minimisation from global uh, big major global companies, and as a result of that, the <coughs> Joe Hockey put together some anti-tax avoidance uh, legislation in 2015. And uh, then the PwC went out to their clients and told them how best to get around it. Hmm. Uh, so uh, And Joe Hockey was said to be frustrated and angry. Jack, have you seen Joe lately? He dresses like he's thirty-five. Does he? Oh, well, he has lived in America for quite some time, and he's got a consultancy in, I think, New York City. Yeah, if, but if you go to America, you find people who are older than me dressed like skater boys. Yeah, he's got a little bit of that. I did uh, come across an interview with him on the NHL. He was getting behind the Washington Capitals when he was uh, uh, when he was uh, Australia's ambassador to the United States. Didn't know a whole lot about hockey, did Joe? But um, um, but uh, is this a fault of legislation or is this a, a a broken system where the bureaucracy is basically being swept aside? I read something the other day, they dated it back to the Howard years, but I actually think it goes back to the Whitlam years. Um, when the Whitlam government came in, some of the incoming ministers were distrustful of the public service because they had been serving a Liberal government for 23 years. Um, and there was a move to, not to politicise the public service, to, to, but to place um, outsiders um, in senior positions within the public service. And that's grown government by government by government so that we've lost a little bit of the benefit of having the Sir Humphrey types, the independent civil servant um, who's going to survive whatever happens to the government, to the political government of the day. Uh, we've lost a little bit of that. And I think that's that has been a loss. I think Keating uh, was elected in 74 um, in the double dissolution election. In 1974, and uh, and his first job as a backbencher was to contact all of the uh, heads of um, of departments and and join them and meet them to to find out how the whole system worked. And uh, he showed probably more uh, acumen and desire to find out than any backbencher before or since. Um, uh, but now it it it, it seems to be. Um, and that was going all the way back to 74. But now it seems to be, which consultancy firm do you know? I mean, a little it, bit it of It staggers that. me. It, it just seems to be inbuilt costs here uh, for the Australian taxpayer, for the Australian people, uh, that whenever there, for example, there is a census organised. We always have to have censuses, I think, every five years. 
And then if you look at the, at the expenditure along the line, there will be a consultancy firm create a, a consultancy firm sought to provide advice uh, so that the bureaucracy and the government can in turn uh, seek a, um, an IT company to perform the work. Uh, and all the way through there, uh, there's a, a lot of money being spent that really seems unnecessary. Uh, doing stuff that once upon a time was done by the public service itself. So, so this is a, a, a consequence of stripping back the public service? Um, no, um, of allowing the public service to outsource uh, uh, part of the work. I mean, these are not generally political decisions to call in a consultant. These are decisions made within the public sector itself. Yeah. Okay. I, I I just see you know like if if you were going to get into government, Jack, if you wanted to just get involved in the business of decision making at the, the highest level, coming in as a consultant is going to be very very lucrative, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I've got to confess that I've done a couple of short term um, uh, gigs within the New South Wales um, uh, State Public Service, um, brought in as a consultant to fix you know relatively minor problems. Yeah, and quite lucrative. You can happily charge them a couple of hundred an hour. Uh, no comment. <laughs> well, we uh, we are going to have to seek your comment on the Higgins Lehman inquiry. Firstly, let me say uh, a, a wholehearted congratulation to Stephen Rice, Ricey at the Australian, and Janet L. Brexton, who have followed this story very, very closely, um, <clears throat> and it. It is looking more and more like we have a serious clash between uh, the Crown Prosecutor and police. Police gave their first lot of evidence yesterday uh, and uh, um, the uh, the officer involved at a senior level um, <coughs> said that there was a very low threshold for prosecution in terms of what the police thought, um, but the uh, uh, the prosecutor, the ACT public prosecutor, Mr. Drumgold, uh, basically uh, climbed over the top of them. That's the way it seems at this stage, Jack. Uh, well, that's his view, um, and 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 the, and they're going to be. I think we're going to end up with um, two conflicting takes on what was actually happening: one from Drumgold and one from the police. Yeah. Uh, one, one from the prosecution service generally, I should say, and one from the police. It's got a fair bit to play out. There'll be a fair bit more police evidence to be called, I would think. Um, but it, it, the process is often messy, but this is not looking good, no. Yes, and, the, and, and uh, Mr. The, Drumgold stepped aside from his yeah, Yes, uh, the, the, the prosecutor, as you say, uh, has stepped aside. Detective Superintendent Scott Moller. Uh, that's a, a very high rank. Uh, he provided evidence under oath to the Sofranoff inquiry yesterday, and it was his view that that the uh, the Lehman prosecution did not uh, fit a reasonable threshold uh, for charges to be laid, and on the basis of uh, it was unlikely that a prosecution would be made. Yes, that's the police view, and and the, and the public prosecutor viewed otherwise. Now we don't need to talk too much without uh, getting into um, uh, some of the reasons why uh, why this why charges were ultimately laid on Bruce Lehman. This was an offence, well, sorry, an alleged offence occurred uh, on, um, uh, on, on parliamentary, uh, 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 on a parliamentary floor in a parliamentary office. 
Uh, and so that necessarily sort of supercharges all of the sort of influences uh, <coughs> and uh, and so forth, you know, uh, in regard to this. So, so it became politicised purely by uh, by circumstances of where the alleged offence was supposed to have occurred, Jack. It also became politicised because it became a media circus. And the media itself, I mean, we've just given some very high praise to Janet and to, to Ricey, uh, who have followed this story very, very closely and, uh, and have, I, I presume, I'm only presuming, uh, have uh, received uh, some information directly from police, which I think is another uh, element of this inquiry. Um, <clears throat> but some of the other media were very, very poor indeed. Um, yes, well, uh, I think there's another on. element of this whole um, uh, kerfuffle that needs to look at. Um, I'm not sure that the uh, terms of the inquiry extend this far, but there were settlements made for um, to uh, to Ms Higgins and, and someone else, I think, um, that uh, were extraordinarily quickly dealt with by Commonwealth standards, if I can put that politely. <laughs> <coughs> yes, the things those, that machine doesn't move. Quickly, normally, Jack. Not when no. it comes to the provision of uh, checks in the mail of uh, you know sort of telephone number type um, dimensions. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's it's some many years since I've sat across the table from the Commonwealth in these sort of negotiations, but I did for a long time, um, and I check with people who are still doing it these days, um, and and their view is that they generally still move at, at a kind of a glacial speed. So there was that, but there was also media clawing for the... Um, uh, the, the, the there was a sense that, um, that uh, Brittany Higgins was... Um, uh, and her allegations were sort of snaffled up almost to, to create um, um, uh, uh, one particular media organisation or other to get the scoop. Um, and there were two significant figures, husband and wife team, in the media who were essentially trading um, uh, a, a book that was that's never been written by Brittany Higgins with uh, Peter Fitzsimons uh, offering, allegedly, I'm going to say allegedly, but offering to uh, act essentially as her uh, agent. Uh, and these stories were told well in advance of police being notified, Jack. Uh, indeed, the, the, the statements to police were timed to come after this publicity. Um, there, there's a further element to it too um, in that, um, on that, in that camp, with the, the that part of the media, were two Labor senators as well. Who were the two? Uh, Katie Gallagher and uh, Penny Wong. Right. So uh, what sort of problems have they got, Jack? Well, I don't think they've got a, a real problem, but there'll be some political, there'll be some a bit of a political ouch about it, I would think, if, if, if all of that is, is, is forced to be disclosed. All right, so we'll keep up to date on the Sofranoff inquiry. Um, uh, police will be giving evidence throughout the week. It's bound to be keep uh, uh, keeping headlines rolling on this case, which seemed when it was first presented as pre presented to us, Jack, as a fairly uh, reasonable uh, or fairly easy sort of uh, um, uh, a matter to 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 work our way through. The offence either occurred or it didn't. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of political play 
in the background now that we know about? Yes, well, Mr Drumgall was very keen on an inquiry and I think he thought, it seemed that he thought this would be a bit of a slam dunk on the police, but it hasn't proved to be so. What's that rule, Jack? Never, never, never... Never off for an inquiry when you don't know how it's going to all pan out. Yeah, that's a, a Sir Humphrey um, uh, rule, I think. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. Only when you know what the result's going to be do you yeah. call an inquiry. Well, this is one where they certainly don't. So we're going to, where the, where the, the outcomes are very, very uncertain and uh, we're going to keep an eye on the soften off inquiry. Um, I mean, the, the best ever example of that was the inquiry into the uh, ships, painters and dockers um, uh, in Australia. Oh, yeah. Uh, which which turned from terrific idea, Jack. Just a just a good old fashioned union bash. Give them a good yeah, kicking, yeah. and here's a union just replete with criminals. And uh, what better, easier uh, headlines to come rolling in, and then all of a sudden, oh my lord, all these members of the Liberal Party were involved in tax minimisation. Oh, well, yeah. no, sorry, not t- not minimisation, not legitimate minimisation, but were involved in taxation rorts. Uh, and then it all got very messy from there. Fraser government gone, who called the inquiry, and then uh, and then Bob Hawke had to oversee it and extend it. It ran for seven years. Yeah, uh, Frank. And do you know when the painters and dockers were finally the Victorian branch of the ship, uh, the Federated Ship Painters and Dockers Association, were um, uh, were finally um, uh, deregistered, Jack. Oh, I can't remember. They were, they were, they were wound into the, um, uh, the, the old water cycle. Maritime unit, yeah, MUA. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it's 1992. Okay. So the, uh, the, the attempt to deregister the union occurred probably in 1976, 77. So it took a very long time uh, to do that. And, and uh, look, isn't it great now? We don't have any more uh, crime on the docks anymore, Jack. Um, yes, I'm sure that's terrific. <laughs> it's all uh, been solved. Yeah, another quick confession. I, I used to go down every uh, every Wednesday to the offices of the Waterside Workers Federation. We were their lawyers, uh, and they were an absolute delight to act for. Uh, yeah, some very colourful characters in there, Jack. I, I, I go back um, to my uh, childhood days where uh, uh, I would uh, be glued to the paper uh, whenever there was a... Um, uh, a painters and dockers election on because uh, whenever that happened, there would be shots fired all over the place and people disappearing and cars being pulled out of the arrow, etc. Um, it was always a colourful time when uh, the secretary or president or the office bearers had to be elected. It was a very lucrative position. It was. If you ran that, you ran uh, you ran the crime that uh, that revolved around the docks, which still, by the way, is ongoing. When you got stuff coming in, and people are going to take it. Um, so there you go. So <laughs> the dockies are gone, um, but uh, the problems on the docks continue. Now the Fin Review, Jack, has gone pretty hard on the Victorian government here. Uh, the, the, there's a Victorian government expert panel on emissions reductions, which has recommended natural gas be largely phased out, and the sale of EVs, Jack, emitting road vehicles will, will end. So that kicks in our EV thing, Jack. You'll you'll, you'll be you'll be looking at paying uh, buying my lunch very very soon at, at this sort of rate. But natural gas. Um, all came from uh, growing up in Melbourne. Uh, we uh, we almost celebrated the fact that uh, we were hooked up to the natu- natural gas pipeline. Probably one of about seven or eight, uh, and uh, we got new got, got the new gas 
gas stove or not get you've got the new gas heater in the in the lounge room. Um, but that's coming to an end, Jack. Uh, so they say. I noticed the ABC this morning were running a uh, a piece from the Climate Council telling us that the way to get to um, the suitable amount of electric vehicles was to cut uh, private vehicle use in half um, uh, in the next 10 years. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Um, look, firstly, I do want to say we've got a, got a letter from Lawrence Balcom, one of our uh, one of our listeners and one of our regular contributors. Um, and Lawrence Balcom pointed out to me a mistake that I had made um, uh, because uh, I'd read a report that Mr. Toyota, the uh, the big boss at Toyota in in uh, in Tokyo or in Yokohama, uh, <clears throat> uh, basically uh, said that uh, the uh, Toyota were going from hybrid and uh, leapfrogging straight into um, into hydrogen fuel cell technology, but that's not quite true. Uh, and Lawrence points out uh, in a letter to me, said a couple of things. Firstly, Toyota has not bypassed EVs in favour of hydrogen. Yes, they are working on both, but their first fully electric car will be in Australia at the end of the year. That's this year, with plans for two more models to be available by early 2026. No time frame for hydrogen. Hydrogen sort of is uh, is uh, being used a bit in California, and there are all sorts of issues with supply and also uh, issues of cost of hydrogen. Um, in California, uh, which is really only the only place or one of the few places around the world with the infrastructure. Um, but uh, so it would appear that uh, Toyota, Mr. Toyota, either lied to us or um, or uh, or we uh, misunderstood the report because uh, there are three models uh, coming into the Australian market uh, from Toyota that are electric, electric powered, not hybrids. Uh, and one of them will be by the end of of this year. Uh, in Perhaps terms, they didn't tell him. <laughs> maybe they didn't tell him. I always wonder whether he got, got the job because his name was Toyota Jack or whether he got the job and had to change his name to Toyota. I think that's kind of the way it goes. Um, Lawrence has got now, some more, more contributions well, here, which we'll get to. Um, while we're on the subject of the gas, what I, I found interesting about the Victorian gas announcement was that uh, it put the Victorian government in conflict with uh, Ed Husick, who uh, runs the area for the federal government, um, and indeed with the ACCC. Uh, they're much more keen on gas than the Victorian government. Oh, yeah, definitely that's the case with the federal government. But look, here's one little comment here from the Victorian Energy Minister, that's Lily D'Ambrosio. Uh, and she said, Victoria has cut emissions by more than any other state since 2014. And we're laying the foundation for more long-lasting change with significant investments in renewable energy, such as bringing back the SEC, which was a huge uh, uh, vote winner for uh, for the Andrews government, I believe, uh, in the last election. There was lots of chance of uh, bringing back the SEC on election night. Um, uh, I'll tell you now that uh, uh, Victoria has cut its emissions by more than any other state because they closed your lawn, Jack. I mean, your lawn was the the biggest single emitter in Australia, were contributing 15% of all Australia's carbon emissions. And now that's closed, Jack. So that, that's, that's an, that, that's, that solves that problem fairly easily, provided you've got um, uh, uh, energy to supplant it. And uh, so far, so good with the Victorians. 
but 1930, but sorry, 2035 will be the end of natural gas, Jack. Mm. So they um, say. N- n- not, a, not according to the Fed. Yeah, well, uh, how much natural gas is coming from uh, the Bass uh, Strait pipelines now? I don't think any. I think it's all gone, isn't it? Yeah. Meanwhile, Ed Huzik's um, uh, uh, keen to open up the, um, uh, the Narrabri and Beetaloo um, uh, gas fields in New South Wales. But yes, he said, I've been very keen, even though it caused me a bit of political grief. People get very upset when I talk about opening up Narrabri and Beetaloo particularly in terms of those who don't necessarily share appreciation of the benefit of gas in the transition, but I've advocated for that. That uh, is Minister Husick's comments there, Jack. We will have to wait and see about all of this. I think part of the problem here is we can't really have, and you know, in the in the in the environment that we've had with the coalition government in power, it's largely been left to the states to make their own way. And we really just do need national initiatives on, on carbon reductions, uh, which are sort of in place now. Um, <coughs> um, um, but staying with Energy Jack, uh, of course, there was a, uh, a meeting of government Leaders in Japan over the weekend, um, President Biden was there before he had to scarper off to deal with the uh, debt ceiling. Um, but uh, uh, Anthony Albanese uh, told uh, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida that Australia is committed to remaining a reliable supplier of energy to Japan in an attempt to calm concerns in Tokyo about future policy decisions in Canberra. Presume that's a, a lot about gas too, because I don't think, uh, uh, well, Australia does does provide a lot of coal uh, for the Japanese market, but their coal, uh, their appetite for coal is diminishing quite rapidly. Jack, yeah, we we supply seventy percent of their coal and about forty percent of their gas. Yeah, I think it's gas that uh, that, uh, that that that's the major concern. Their their consumption of coal is 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 going down. I can almost uh, pull up a pull up a uh, pull up a, a, an amount there, but their renewable sector is probably about ten times what uh, what the coal is, what, what the consumption of coal is in terms of gigawatt hours and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> Um, uh, meanwhile, Jack, um, um, in the Ukraine... Just, be, uh, just before we leave Australia, we can't go past and not talk about the wonderful thing that's happening at the ABC, the wonderful story that's happening there at the moment. Oh, uh, well, you absolutely do need to talk about this, and I must have skated over it, Jack. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, yes, we have, yes. Uh, it, it, look, the Australian has run with a couple of stories. It was covered on Media Watch in a kind of bland way yesterday, last night. Um, that the, um, shall we say, the news reporting sector, that's where I think the problems lie, uh, is a sort of monoculture um, uh, full of uh, white Australians or at least uh, um, uh, managed by white Australians. uh, And uh, this comes uh, in in response to uh, the resignation uh, of Stan Grant as the host of Q and A, Jack, after receiving um, a number of um, 
uh, a, a, you know some some really some really awful sort of racist sort of responses to uh, to his uh, various social media accounts, Jack, and oh, yeah. going on to say that the ABC had not supported him. Yeah, uh, uh, Stuart Littlemore and David Solder jumped into the uh, Sydney Morning Herald during the yes, week. Yes, that was yesterday, um, and. Um, and they said the real problem at the ABC is a consequence of journalists and their opinions. Their real problem is competence or the lack of it and a failure to recognise that staff cannot have a foot in both the fact and the opinion camps. Now, this set off a, a whole chain of events. They also said that um, uh, early, early on, people like Mike Carlton were quite supportive of that, uh, part of the wider ABC community, as I said. Um, uh, but later on, um, you know, by the end of the day, I think uh, Barry Cassidy was on the anti-Littlemore and Salter camp. Um, uh, so it's been amusing to watch. And uh, Quentin Dempster, he, he wins the prize. Um, he knew who to blame because the, the, the argument really is, did, did Stan Grant get enough support from, the, from within the ABC or not? But Quentin Dempster knew who to blame, Murdoch. Oh, well, yes, yes, of course. I mean, that's his go-to position on just about everything. Um, I have done some work at the ABC. I had a limited contract there. I was just talking to a, a mate of mine on Twitter about it in my DMs. I found the atmosphere there to be particularly cloying. Um, it was not a pleasant experience. Um, I'd come along just to explain what I was doing there on, on a limited contract to talk about the fine cotton uh, episode. And uh, and that was part of I think I, I think a, a maybe six or seven part um, podcast. Um, I really was uh, hired as a consultant, uh, and uh, we had I, I was faced with a group of people who had no idea about storytelling, absolutely no idea about storytelling, and decided, or at least a couple did. That um, that they were going to look at this as a who done it and and try and resolve the mystery that I could have told them could not be resolved in a legal way, in a way that could avoid um, defamation actions, because there are certain things that are not provable. And, and, I and there are this. certain and there are certain people who are involved who are of a particularly litigious nature. Indeed, indeed. And so um, while I as a consultant, was happy to provide that advice that, you know, you can you can call in whoever you like who can make these assertions and all that. In the end, you will have a legal, you are looking at a legal minefield. Let's stick with the funny part of the story, the actual bit that happened uh, in and around the racetrack and the immediate, uh, the immediate conspirators because that is very, very funny. But if you want to look at more broadly who... Who uh, who organised this? Whether it was George Freeman or Robbie Waterhouse or anybody else, you cannot prove it. So that's an aside, almost, because really, what the person driving the podcast was trying to do was make a name for themselves in order to get some form of. Uh, boost to their career within the news department. And that became really almost impossible to resolve or to reconcile. So, yeah, um, 
Uh, it was. Well, I'm I'm on a little more insulted camp on this. It, it, from the outside, it looks to be a pretty poorly run organisation. Um, certainly, uh, the bits that I can, I, they're very good on the on the technical aspects of what goes wrong with uh, ABC newscasting. It's the only only TV station I watch. By the way, I'm a quite a loyal ABC uh, watcher. But what there is a lack of. Um, uh, is some hard-headed edit- editing um, that things go to where that someone should have said, you need to check this before you run this, or you need to think about whether this is an appropriate uh, appropriate response, etc., etc. That doesn't seem to happen. Um, uh, and, and that's well, an organisational well, problem. I, I certainly take the view that opinion creeps into reporting too easily if if not managed properly, and I think that's something that the ABC have had a problem with. I go back to my mate Lee Sale, who studiously avoided that stuff, right? Studiously avoided um, putting a flag in the ground and, and saying, this is where I stand politically. And, in, and what she got for for her for her trouble as host of Seven Thirty and one of the ABC's main um, uh, main news uh, personalities was uh, a flogging from the left and and a probably somewhat lighter flogging from the right. I mean, she could do. I mean, she certainly got more strength of character than than to pander to an audience, but um, but uh, yeah, she was basically. Uh, sort of hounded out of the position by essentially people on the left who just didn't like what she was saying, didn't like the way she conducted her interviews. Uh, and didn't like the news they were getting, more to, more to the point. That's the um, thing, isn't it? You know, I mean, bias is, is, is media bias is, is, is like beauty in one, in one respect and one respect only. It, it, it is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and so it's perceived bias rather than actual bias. But I still think, I mean, Salesy um, notwithstanding, uh, people like, um, and very fine journalists, very fine political journalists, are too often being um, asked to provide opinion, and you can often see it in the same report. So there'll be a report on a political matter, and then that ABC personality who's done the report will also offer their opinion on it. And I think that's the thing that needs to change within the ABC, wouldn't you say, Jack? Well, classic example last night, I watched a stand, a very odd thing, uh, for a bloke who was resigning sort of essentially because the job had become too much for him. He did one last show. He did I found, show, I found yeah. that a little bit odd. I, anyway. I, I never watched the show, but I, I did see Media Watch and then it ran into it. And I went, oh, a stand. What's Stan doing there? Yeah, I, I thought he was off on sort of what, almost like mental health work. Tomorrow. Anyway, yeah, it starts yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll come to a similar situation shortly, but uh, that seemed very odd to me. But I actually watched the whole show, um, uh, and it was about uh, 25 to 30% Stan's opinions, and that's what's gone wrong with the ABC. Yeah. Now, I, look, that, to be fair... John Bannon is the current host of Media Watch. I don't know if you saw it, Jack, but I thought they, I thought Bannon explored that pretty well. This idea that opinions are being promoted while news is being reported. Now that can you can get away with that in a commercial media organisation because it does happen quite a lot, um, but with the ABC, I don't think it's sustainable. Yeah. Um, I, I watched the the, the, the British uh, Question Time. 
um, which is the which was the forerunner of uh, Q and A, um, the BBC show. Um, and, and there's one distinct difference: uh, the, the the anchor of Question Time, Fiona Bruce, is interested in what the panelists and the audience think about an issue, whereas what's happened with Q and A um, is that the pre- the presenter is interested in what they think the audience um, and panelists' view should be. Yeah, look, I mean, when the f- uh, look, I don't watch the show. I, I find it tedious for pretty much those reasons. Well, I'm one of the um, last three listeners. I accept that. <laughs> You're a stubborn man, Jack. The uh, the, the the to me the uh, the issue around that program is that it really should just be shut down. It, it it just needs to be shut down. Could be retooled if you like. It needs to be presented in that way. I think when Tony Jones first started it, that that was the way it was. That, that it was, I don't really care what Tony Jones' opinions are on these sorts of things. Tony might give you a little bit of insight um, um, and just uh, uh, <coughs> as a caveat, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I get on well with Tony Jones, he's a good black. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that, so that program had something to offer in, in those early days. But when you've got, when you start the program, and you would have noticed this last night, Jack, you sta- it starts off with, with a monologue from the presenter. Yeah, and it ended with a longer one. You didn't <laughs> yeah, wait till yeah. the end. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm, I'm so it was about twenty, it. at least twenty percent. What Stan thought about something. Look, uh, M- Mike Carlton suggested during the week that what needed, what was needed at Q and A was a mercy killing, and I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Oh yeah, it, it 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 needs to be shut down, as they say in the industry, Jack, and retooled. Uh, in fact, it needs to be ploughed in and the earth salted. Oh dear, oh dear, it's that bad. Well, you keep you keep watching it, Jack. Oh, oh well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm such a loyal ABC viewer. That's the only thing I only, only thing I watch. Uh, look, um, just going on from the, the fine cotton work uh, that I did there. One, one, uh, I received a phone call from from a friend who used to work at the Australian and now works at the ABC. And he said, "Oh, what happened? What happened with the what happened with the fine cotton thing?" I said, "Well, you tell me what happened." And uh, and he said, oh, I I heard management just walked all over the newsroom. And I said, well, that's one interpretation. <laughs> so that sort of tells you that the newsroom is this very very controlling entity, and and that they will put their own spin on things. And when you go and look at them, there's some very fine journalists there. One of my very, very best mates is the European correspondent for the ABC, Steve Kane, wonderful guy, wonderful journal. There's a terrific guys working the coalface there. And, um, but there are some, some pretty ordinary time servers around the place as well. Uh, and, uh, look, you know, you could say the same of, of, of just about any other media organization, but, but, with the ABC, it is the national broadcaster, you know, even watched it as far away as, uh, as in Hong Kong, and, uh, and they need to be very clinical about the way they present their news programs. Can, can I just give them a shout-out, though? <coughs> a couple of things they've done recently have been really very good. Um, they're, they're Pacific shows, because I, I watch the um, Asia-Pacific version of the ABC, um, but they have a, a new Pacific sports show and a Pacific news show, and they're very, very good, and they're a terrific idea. Straight after Q and A, Jack, there's the China news. Yeah, well, the, a, a the China, China magazine quite, program. Yeah, and there is an Indian magazine program, and they're both very good. This is all good stuff from the ABC. Mm, mm, mm. 
No, definitely. They're very capable of doing these things. I think the newsroom needs to be have a bit of a clean out just quietly. Um, all media organisations or workers or journalists, etc., are, are under the pump and there should be no reason why some of the ABC people uh, should, uh, should uh, be sort of uh, uh, glad-handed into tennis, uh, uh, tenure, Jack. Mm. Um, uh, all right. Um, uh, we just want to go on to the voice now. It was a little bit quick moving, uh, moving overseas. We won't do that just yet. Uh, the voice, Jack, I just want to add Lawrence Belcom's uh, note on that. He said, a quick look at the lacklustre folks sitting behind Peter Dutton would suggest he's got the job for as long as he wants it. This is in regard to our conversation about where Peter is at, at, as the opposition leader. He said, but the voice, the biggest plus for the yes case is the familiar faces popping up to argue for the other side, the same people who couldn't say sorry because it would open the floodgates for litigation, uh, the same people who argued that same-sex marriage was a slippery slope to the destruction of civilised society, Howard, Abbott, LNP politicians and the Sky News crowd. This is... Uh, still going on with the letter. They were resoundingly defeated in the plebiscite. My gut is telling me they will be losers again. Jack, just uh, to interrupt that flow, um, uh, the Nine Media published a, um, uh, a poll uh, with uh, those in favour at 53, those against 47, and that is within that band of failure. In terms of uh, in terms of a poll, with uh, you know two and a half three percent. Um, could go either way <coughs> on the margin of error. So the no case is getting is tracking a greater support at this stage. That's my that 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 seems to be what the polling is saying. And sorry, Lawrence, it's tracking support well beyond the Howard Abbott Dutton um, uh, group. Um, but they're not going to defeat the referendum. Um, the referendum will fail, I think, uh, not because. They, um, uh, they urged against it because the proponents of the referendum, <coughs> uh, the Yes group, um, have failed in their process and their proposal. Well, the Yes argument actually rolled out their television advertising, and you wouldn't see this on the ABC, Jack, on your ABC. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> well, possibly you will. <coughs> but um, but the, uh, uh, the the... There is a, a, a tilted sentiment uh, in the advertising. Um, it's actually quite effective, I think, because the, the way it ends is prepare yourself for the debate. So go and make yourself informed about about how you want to deal with this. It's obviously advocating the S position and explains why. But the the tag at this stage, at this stage, now we're recording on the 23rd of May, the tag is go and get yourself informed. Which I think is a pretty good. I think it's a pretty good strategy, um, and, and I think it's a it, it's a good piece of advertising. Um, I did notice Jack um, uh, the uh, the other mob, the no uh, the no um, advocates, uh, had uh, got around on their website and interviewed a number of Indigenous Australians, uh, including one that they claimed was the grandson of Vincent Lingari, uh, uh, Vincent Lingari, one of the great uh, Indigenous reformers, land reformers, uh, passed the, uh, the handful of sand into Gough Whitlam's hand very famously. T- 
Turned out it wasn't Vincent Lignari's grandson at all. And when he was asked about this, Jack, uh, the fellow who said, yes, no, it's a different mob. Um, they might be cousins, but uh, that's about as close as it gets. But he had just been handed a piece of paper and asked to read it. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I, sure I, I find that really distasteful. And I, I'm sorry, I got up I got up one Monday and I said, well, I hope you've taken that down. Oh, yes, it's all come down now. Pretty awful stuff. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, I just say to, to Lawrence that um, uh, most referendums in Australia fail. They're all put up by a government. That is, they're put up by the political party that's more popular than their opponents. Uh, I don't think that Dutton, Howard, um, uh, Abbott, etc., have are going to have much to do with the result um, at all. Um, most referendums fail not because they're um, uh, unpopular in a political sense that they fail because they fail to persuade a majority of the people in the majority of states to make a fundamental change. Might I also add, Jack, that I think the greater, the, 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 the more someone like Tony Abbott gets involved, um, the, the worse it is for the no case. Yeah, you, 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 you've already given Dutton and Abbott, etc., a pass. Like, you won't be able to blame them if, when this fails because you've told them that everything they do um, is good for the good for the yes case. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen Abbott's op-eds. Um, so and- I'll hold you to that if it fails. You can't be blaming Dutton. <laughs> well, I mean, look, we saw this with Abbott. We've seen Abbott's been on the wrong side of history so many times. It's not funny. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, Abbott really doesn't have a lot of credibility in, in his opinions. And, and, and as and as Lawrence has pointed out, he, he was a firm advocate for uh, against same-sex, uh, same-sex marriage uh, um, postal poll, I think we ended up with. Um, firm, firm advocate for that. Um, basically, he has been a, a naysayer on virtually every significant social reform uh, put to put to the Australian people um, uh, over over the last twenty or thirty years. Yeah, but they're only thirty percent of the vote. That's not going to defeat the referendum. Now, at the moment, I would say that the Dutton Abbott Howard camp would be about thirty percent of the population. So that's not going to defeat the thing. Over what there. I'm saying is, is the, the referendum is going to be lost. It's not going to be won by the no case. It's going to be lost by the yes case. I understand what you're saying, and what I'm saying is that the the no case, the more strident it becomes, and they were exposed telling a few porkies last week, um, the, <coughs> the the no advocates, the more strident they are, the more um, um, uh, uh, omnipresent people like uh, Tony Abbott are, that, that will be, um, um, and he, he is basically political death. Um, I was talking to a bloke who said, Absolute, you know, worth a mozza, banking executive, simply, simply didn't vote liberal for the first time in his life because Tony Abbott was a candidate there. Yeah, and that, well, you know, that goes back to Warringah. So yeah. I'd say the more, I mean, Howard might be an exception, but, but the more they use people like Abbott and also Dutton, the more likely the yes vote is to succeed. That's my view. So I tend to agree with Lawrence in that regard. Um, but anyway, we will see. We've got a long way to go. The advertisements are still rolling out. We still haven't heard from Peter Garrett, Jack. We still haven't heard from Paul Kelly. We uh, we did hear quite a lot from the footballers over the weekend. I don't know if you saw that, Jack. The I AFL, did. the AAU, the NRL have all uh, ad, uh, have all advocated for the yes position. 
I'm not quite sure how effective that will be, but um, um, they had uh, a lot of the Indigenous foot, uh, AFL footballers uh, commenting on The Voice uh, late last week. Um, now we are going to move overseas, Jack, and uh, it would seem that Bakhmut has fallen uh, to the Russians. Um, and um, uh, the New York Times ran with a... Um, Online, New York Times ran with uh, some footage of a drone that they put up in the air. <laughs> We've been very lucky not to get it shot down, um, but uh, they uh, they uh, uh, cast a, the, the drone cast an eye over the city of Buckmut. There's not a lot left there, Jack. No, and, couldn't imagine uh, there would be. It's been hand to hand, not quite hand to hand fighting, but street by house street, house to house, fighting, yeah, house to house almost, yeah. And, and 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 so, what's the benefit of this for the Russians now? Um, they needed a win. They they needed it. They did need a win indeed. Yeah, and and they've got one. Um, now the other significant move in this particular conflict is that uh, uh, Zelensky uh, met with Biden, and Biden's assured them uh, of continued military aid, including the transfer of F sixteen fighter jets, Jack, to Ukraine. I think they're coming from the Netherlands, aren't they? I believe so. Um, that it is a faster, um, uh, uh, it is a faster, uh, uh, more capable fighter than the uh, than the Russian MiGs. Um, but the Russians, as you might expect, are not terribly happy about it. Um, <clears throat> Russia's ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Ant- Antonov, has said. You reckon it'd be into planes, wouldn't he, with a name like Antonov? There is no infrastructure for the operation of the F-16 in, in Ukraine and the needed number of pilots and maintenance personnel is not there either, he said. So he's suggesting that would in, involve American fighter pilots or indeed NATO fighter pilots manning the F-16s from, from somewhere external to, um, to, to the Ukraine. Mm. Is that a hot? Uh, is that a hot spot? Well, it's a bit to play out there. I would I'll put it that way. Well, I'm, I'm, I saw Biden on the telly saying that you know he, he's assured, every, assuring everybody that um, this will they will only be allowed to use um, within Ukrainian airspace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, there were so, all sorts of limits that yeah, Biden yeah. did put on. But, but it's oh, this is all promises and threats and all that sort of stuff. We have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, um, uh, there were reports, of course, that, that Putin is actually considering an exit strategy. Um, oh, look, a lot of this stuff is unsourced and, and uh, mm-hmm. particularly unreliable, but if if they're going to expend that much manpower, that much loss of life, casualties, uh, degrading of, uh, of their military capability for the town or city of Bakhmut, um, uh, they must be realising that uh, that uh, any a- any any more adventurism in the in Ukraine is going to come at a significant cost to them. Yes. Well, we we'll have to just have to wait and see. Well, they're sensible enough to make those assessments, Jack, because at the end of it, and I've talked about this a lot, Russia will remain uh, a global outcast economically for a very very long time. Um, it's not as if uh, if fighting stopped and and uh, uh, and uh, there was some sort of negotiated peace that 
that Russia would, uh, that, that everyone would drop their sanctions against the Russians, that they will be an outcast in the world for a very, very long time. And they've all got to understand that. And that's going to really have a huge impact on their economy going forward and something that they will not be able to get themselves out of. Their GDP figures are really, really poor and, uh, and there's no sign of them going going forward. So they're basically locked into long, enduring recessions, if not depression. That's the cost of this. You know, that's that that's the cost of that's the cost of the invasion is you will be and you will be an, a, a pariah in the world uh, for a very, very long time to come. The quicker they get out of it, the quicker it ends. That's 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 got to be the pressure. All right, the United States, Jack, the Durham report was just a whole pile of nothing, wasn't it? Um, I think only the FBI agree with you, actually. <laughs> the FBI were quick to come out and say, oh, look, we had a lot of problems, but we fixed them. Um, so I don't think they thought it was a nothing. Well, what did it say? Was there, was there, was there an attempt by US uh, uh, intelligence and law enforcement agencies to, uh, to stitch up Donald Trump? Was, was Donald Trump who who hired Durham as a special investigator. Did any of that happen? Um, oh, I think there's some um, some very poor behaviour by the FBI. Um, and um, uh, and I think it, 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 it's certainly no ticking bomb for the FBI, but, it, it, you know, the FBI wouldn't have come out and said they've had to fix problems. They've had to fix the problems because um, well, of the I think there Durham are a couple, of, couple of issues around the political allegiances of certain FBI agents and and they're well perhaps the best way of putting it their their regard towards Donald Trump um, but really this it's a to it's, be, it, it's not a career ender for those people because their careers had already ended that's right yeah um, Comey Strock Page Clapper etc they're all gone um, um, yeah. well yeah look I, I'm just not Totally sure about uh, about any sort of significant thing. I mean, like, Trump has always uh, um, babbled that that this was a stitch up from uh, U.S. Uh, uh, security and it, and law enforcement agencies, and that's really just not been supported. It's not supported um, at all. The uh, it it neither um, uh, fulfilled the dreams of the Trump supporters. Uh, nor, was it, nor was it an exoneration in the sense that the uh, Democrat supporters suggested. The most fun bit of it for me um, was the fact that um, uh, Obama, Biden uh, and someone else, Susan Rice, were all briefed on, on the fact that um, the Steele dossier came from the Clinton campaign. And this wouldn't have been used to Obama and Biden because they'd fought primary campaigns against the Clinton machine and they would have known how hard they play politics. Yeah. yeah. No, fair enough. I mean, it just it, it doesn't support the, the nonsense that, that Trump has come up with. I do note too, Jack, that E. Jean Carroll is uh, seeking new damages from uh, for Trump. Uh, from uh, from Donald Trump for comments that he made on CNN. Um, so he's looking like uh, he's going to be a little bit lighter in the wallet again. Yeah, well, he may, he might think she's a cost of business. 
Yeah, yeah, indeed. All right. Um, <coughs> uh, George Santos, uh, they've tried to expel him. The Dems have tried to expel him, but uh, but he was uh, that 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 attempt was uh, defeated on party lines. Well, you, couldn't, uh, you, you really couldn't expel him uh, while he's only been charged. Really, no, that's a, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it will it will run on, um, and uh, his uh, his particular part of Long Island will be up for a re-election in twenty twenty four. And what what chance do you give him, Jack? Um, much chance. I, I could move over there now and beat him. I reckon. <laughs> well, only if you pretend to be Jewish, Jack. Mm-hmm. Which is something he did. I think I said last week that he pretended uh, he was Cuban. Um, but no, he's actually pretending that he was Jewish. He pretended a great many things. He's well, got a well, fantastic well, resume. Well, um, more, doesn't stand more up specifically, a lot of scrutiny, but terrific. Don't pay more me. specifically, he, he cut the Jew and ish into two words. He said he wasn't a Jew, but he's ish Jew. You know, he, took, he was Jew-ish. Ish. Yeah. 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 yeah, I know. A Jew, um, Jew adjacent, you might say. Very strange. To, to use being. the current terminology, Jew adjacent. Yeah, I, I, I think the thing is, he, he ticked a lot of progressive boxes for um, for Republicans who perhaps live on Long Island, uh, and that was why he was elected. Uh, but it was all made up. Um, so <laughs> he's got some fairly extensive charges headed his way, and uh, he'll be a busy boy dealing with all of those. The big issue for the United States, though, Jack, is the debt ceiling. My God, we've got to go through this all over again. Yeah. Um, When the debt ceiling is raised, it's often raised without any uh, nonsense. But when this this all happened during the Obama time, it was threatened during the the Trump uh, stage as well. Um, uh, Every time the debt ceiling has got to go up, um, it needs the endorsement of the Congress. And if the Congress don't do it, what happens, Jack? If the Congress uh, don't endorse? Um, well, the Congress ha- ha- controls the purse strings, in effect, so there's no money to pay, any, pay anybody. So it essentially just shuts your public service down, right? Yeah, it does. But this has happened 18 times under Ronald Reagan, eight times under Bill Clinton. I, I remember the Clinton ones, yeah. yeah I don't yeah. remember the Reagan ones. I really don't. Seven times under George W. Bush. Um and uh, and every time there's market turmoil, uh, every time, uh, well, na- not last time that I can recall, national parks were closed uh, because they couldn't pay for the uh, for the for, for the park uh, for the park guides and and what have what have you. Uh, and of course, p- people who work in the public service don't get paid. And then you've got people who are on security payment, uh, sorry, uh, uh, social security payments. Who are not getting paid as well? So it's a potential disaster. Hmm. So well, Joe's, so Joe's uh, given um, uh, given the summit at Hiroshima the flick and and uh, and gone back to try and negotiate with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, it always kind of reminds me of uh, a barrister friend of mine who used to be surprised every Easter when the pre- pre- his provisional tax bill would arrive. Um, uh, you know, we ought to see this coming. Um, it, it's 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 the conflict between the, the three arms of the United States government: the judiciary on one hand, um, a Congress in the middle, and the and the um, uh, and the presidency. And it's it's insanely ultimate, political. Ultimately, the, the the Congress controls the purse springs. That's the way it's designed. So the president 
ultimately has to go and negotiate with the, with the Congress. It's almost a, an act from Congress of you know political um, suicide, a political murder suicide, where they commit suicide first and then threaten to murder someone else afterwards. Um, I, I just wanted to create, some, you know, give give our listeners some fact, some facts. The, the federal government spent six point four eight trillion in twenty twenty two, down nine hundred and twenty billion from the previous year after adjust, adjusting for inflation. Spending per person totaled 19434 per person, a 13% decrease from 2021. Expenditures were distributed across several major categories with the largest going towards grants to state and local governments. So they're actually spending less now, Jack. So why are they having these problems? Uh, well, you can argue the merits all you like, but the constitutional reality is that the president's going to have to negotiate with the Congress um, to get what well, he, wants. he he thinks he can look he, he can look at the Fourteenth Amendment and just uh, um, just do it well, just a, do it by executive a, order. That's a novel idea. Um, I, I haven't seen any constitutional lawyer from no, America of any merit at all. I agree haven't with seen that, but 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 uh, this is part of the the jockeying that will go on. Um, the Fourteenth Amendment of the United States. Well, let's have a quick look, Jack. Uh, what is the Fourteenth Amendment? Um, uh, it was passed. Oh, crikey, passed, passed uh, Civil War. Uh, <coughs> uh, granted citizenship to persons born or naturalised in the United States. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's. Uh, doesn't seem like it's all that relevant, Jack. Uh, um, well, uh, this is the debt ceiling has been raised seventy four times in 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 twenty years. Well, seventy four times from March sixty two to to May twenty eleven. Uh, and no one raised the Fourteenth Amendment argument or all that time. There you go. Well, section section four of the of the Fourteenth Amendment is it reads the reads thus: the the validity of the public debate of the United States, authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for service in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. But neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection. Just don't think that's going to work. But nice try, Joe. We'll see. I mean, our markets again, global markets, going to have to be thrown into turmoil once again. We'll soon find out uh, in the uh, ongoing disaster that is American politics. Jack and Kenya, I don't know if you've seen these reports. Um, a cult, a death cult. Um, the body count now is at 202. This really caught my eye. I've got a particular interest in cults um, and uh, a particular loathing of them. Uh, this cult, Jack, and and like a lot of like a lot of cults, they do become death cults. But Paul McKenzie, the leader of the Good News International Church, this is an indigenous Kenyan group, by the way. Uh, had ordered or was accused of ordering his followers to starve their children and themselves to death so they could go to heaven before the end of the world, which he predicted to be on April 15. Uh, that was uh, sort of six weeks ago, Paul, so you're way out. Um, he's a former taxi driver, by the way. 202 people died of starvation. It's an extraordinary thing. And, and, and what I find most extraordinary about this is if we think about places like Jonestown, um, and you may have seen some footage, Jack, 
certainly our listeners may have seen some footage. There's really only one um, piece of footage taken from Jonestown, and there we see people lining up to take their um, to, to, to to basically drink poison and die, and they were doing so at gunpoint. You know, um, some did it willingly, others not. Um, but here we've got people, the level of devotion, Jack, the level of devotion to actually starve themselves to death. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, Paul McKenzie is currently in custody in Kenya. Uh, they haven't figured out what to charge him with yet. Um, uh, <clears throat> but uh, they uh, have uh, requested his uh, custody for a further 90 days. Uh, and uh, there has been in Kenya a, 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 a judicial inquiry called into what has happened here, Jack. And we see this sort of stuff all around the world, mate. Um, we see this sort of mind manipulation. Cults are by nature exploitative. And as I say, many of them become death cults when things start falling apart. Beware of anyone who tells you the world's going to end by a certain day. Yeah, well, you know, it's the, it's, it's the foundation of a lot of cults. The foundation of a lot of cults is, is the apocalypse. And QAnon is one of those. The storm is coming, you know. Uh, and and so when you start to believe, when you fall for that sort of nonsense, that you're capable of just about anything. But this really just stretches the bounds uh, for me because these are people who, on you know, being being manipulated, having their thoughts controlled, essentially uh, led themselves to starving their own children. Pretty pretty amazing, Jack. Now. Of course, this couldn't happen in Australia, could it? What do you, you mean? We elect the pop, the apocalyptic end of the Greens? No, <laughs> you could say that. No, I'm sticking with cults, um, and I just wanted to briefly talk about. No, well, I, I thought we were on cults. <laughs> well, we'll stay with we'll stay with death cults. Okay. Um, right. uh, the. The Church of Scientology, well, it, it's called the Church of Scientology in Australia because of a High Court ruling. Uh, and the High Court ruling was essentially established by, uh, well, it was a, in, a, in an action between the Victorian government and, the, and Scientology. And the, uh, the High Court determined at that time, and I'm thinking of judgment, it was about 1978, 1980, something, something of that order, where, and it's quite a reasonable assessment it's quite a reasonable judicial um, uh, determination that that they that the, that the high court said it was not a, not for them to decide what a religion was and they did so fully acknowledging that religion is full of um, charlatanism and and what what have you but they said it's not the role of judges to uh, to determine what a religion is. So on the basis of that ruling, what we have in Australia is if you if you behave like a religion, if you believe you are a religion, then you are a religion. And you've got access to potentially, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, establishing yourself as a charity, not having to pay tax, uh, all the way into sort of very strange sort of cult-like behaviour. What are we going to do about that, Jack? Um, we just have to go along with it for the moment. Yeah, because it's the only time law enforcement will intervene is when there's a, a you know when they come to a belief that 
children are being exploited, uh, people are not being well looked after, those sorts of things. So you only deal with these things once they become issues. I was talking to a bloke, he's an, he's an intelligence analyst with, uh, with uh, counter-ter- counter-terrorism with one of our police departments, and he was saying that a lot of the sort of freedom movement people who simply haven't moved on, I mean, a lot of, the majority have gone back to their lives and might be unhappy, but they've gone back to their lives. But then there's this sort of group that remain there, almost cult-like, uh, whether they're in Canberra or hanging around, a, hanging around uh, the Victorian Parliament or whatever it is. These people, they've got no way back. They've, they've, they've sort of joined a cult and there's no way back for them. I don't know where yep. they're going to end up. And I'm not entirely sure that I'd like to be spending my tax dollars on uh, <coughs> on, on debunking their their, uh, their cults for them. All right, we'll move on, Jack. We want to have a bit of a talk about energy. Uh, and you've, you've pointed out some figures here from uh, from India and, coals, and, and Indian coal production. Um, this financial year, uh, India has produced 703 million tonnes of coal, Jack? Something like that, yeah. Um, uh, I think now India is the biggest uh, user of coal for electricity generation outside of, uh, outside of China. That would be correct too? Uh, that's correct, yeah. Uh, and China is the world leader by some considerable margin. So here we have these two developing nations, uh, for want of a better term, and they are the big coal burners around the world. Yes. Uh, And you've got a quote here from Andrew Neil. Who's Andrew Neil? He's a distinguished British journalist. Right. And what's he saying? Uh, uh, He's saying that the global demand for coal uh, will hit an all-time peak this year. Yeah, she says it might slip a bit thereafter, but by 2030, demand is still projected to be what it was in 2015, which symbolises a failure of the COP process. I'm not entirely sure that I agree, but certainly we can agree that 8 billion tonnes of coal uh, was uh, was burnt uh, in, in largely for um, electricity and uh, in the production of steel. Uh, 8 billion tonnes was extracted from, from the ground in 2022 globally, and that is a, a world record. Um, but um, according to the International Agency, uh, global coal will rise by 1.2 this year, that's 2023, surpassing 8 billion tonnes. Uh, as I said, um, uh, um, indeed, China, India, and Indonesia, three of the most populous nations on earth. In fact, one, two, and I think about five. The, the, they're the three largest coal producers and will all hit production records this year. Um, uh, but, Jack, there's another way of looking at this. And I looked at the International Energy Agency Um uh, in 2021, about 250 gigawatts of new solar and wind generation capacity was installed worldwide compared with only 14 gigawatts of net new coal generation capacity. New solar and wind capacity is being deployed 18 times faster worldwide than net new 
coal capacity. So it follows that solar and wind generation will rapidly overtake coal generation as most existing coal power stations will grow old and retire before 2050. And it goes on to say, globally, solar is set to pass coal in terms of electricity generation by terawatt in 2026 and will pass all other forms, gas, nuclear, hydro, etc., in 2031. And in China, for example, in 2021, 120, 120 gigawatts came online from renewables with only 24 from coal. Uh, in India, 5.2 gigawatts came from coal and 12.7 gigawatts from renewables. Uh, globally, 250 gigawatts come from solar, around 10 times that of coal, Jack. So what's your take on that? Do you think that coal is not going to be needed? Well, I'm not saying that, that at all. What I'm saying is that you presented a lot of figures here indicating that coal was the king, was the king supplier. Um, uh, and, and certainly in 2022, we had the most, the, the largest amount of coal dug out of, the, dug out of the ground. But what we're also seeing is a profound shift towards renewables. Um, <clears throat> and that one day coal will not be king. Coal, coal cannot be king uh, going into the future. It just it mightn't be. be king, but it's still going to be needed. That's my point. I don't really care what's the biggest one. My point is that coal, the demand for fossil fuels, is not going away. Well, it has to. And 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 I'm not saying I'm not saying that from a point of view of uh, climate change reports or anything like that. But on these figures, it will it will go into decline, and it will go into decline for a very good reason, and that is for countries who have to import coal from places like Australia. Um, <clears throat> uh, are are going to have to keep shoveling in what is an expensive resource are going to have to keep shoveling it into a furnace to create electricity, or they can go with renewables plus battery storage and they will have a cheaper and more um, uh, and and uh, a cheaper and uh, and more reliable power source that way. And that's the way things things are going. China, as I say, you know, well, this is the International Energy Association says that globally solar is set to pass coal in three years by terawatt generation and will pass all other forms of, uh, of energy <coughs> or electricity generation by 2031, Jack. Uh, there's two things about that. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this another day, but there's a, a mathematical difficulty with those calculations in the sense that how do they work out what the capacity of that solar um, uh, installation is? Is it the maximum, maximum it can produce or is it what it produces on its best day or its worst day or its average? No one really knows the answer to that question from those figures. Well, you're not, um, trying, to, you're not trying to tell us that, uh, you know, uh, you don't get electricity when the sun doesn't shine. Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is what's the figure they're using? But we can talk about this another day. My point is this. That is that fossil fuel use is not going away. The only way it goes away is if countries like Australia say to Japan, our, our big trading partner, China, our biggest trading partner, and, and countries like India, that we won't mine coal, we won't extract gas and send it to you. Although we know that you need it and you want it, we won't sell it to you. 
Yeah, I'm just looking at uh, Japan, Japan, for example. So their, their level of renewables is around about 10 times what, what their level of renewable output in, in gigawatts is about 10 times that of coal in Japan right now. They certainly don't sound like they're going away from fossil fuels. They were just telling the Australian Prime Minister to be careful about this because we want to buy your fossil fuels. Yeah, mainly That's going gas. to stay for a long mainly time. Mainly gas. So you, you, you've got co- part of the problem is that you've got coal at such a high price. That's part of the problem. That's that's the thing that will actually ultimately make it redundant. That it's just too expensive. It's it, you you have to keep loading it into a furnace. And you have to keep buying it for most of the world. Um, uh, you have to keep buying it from um, uh, from from another country like Australia, from a ma- major uh, from a major uh, provider. Um, Jack, you, you you've often mentioned the fact that uh, you know Browns and Yellows and so shouldn't they have access to electricity? Isn't access to electricity total now in India, for example? Most of the country got access to some electricity. It's probably just a light globe and a light globe in the ceiling, but that's yeah. Most of the country already has it, but they haven't got access to power in the way that we have. They haven't got air conditioning everywhere. Um, none of the things that we consider normal in Australia are, are, are there, and they aren't in a fair bit of China yet as well. Yeah, but it's not as if people don't have access. I mean, you know, the, the rest of it is driven by market forces. It's not as if people don't have access in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Uh, around 50% of the population, it's, it, it is totality in India, by the way, in terms of access to electricity. The rest of it's driven by market forces, you know. So if you know if, if you can afford an air conditioner, that's a, that's a separate issue. Um, <coughs> and and you can afford a, a, an extended power bill as a result. That's a, that's a separate issue. In sub-Saharan Africa, you've got 50% of people who have access to electricity and they're not responding by coal consumption, any other way. Yes, there is a new, I think, new coal-fired power station in Zimbabwe. We've uh, gone through some of the issues that South Africa has had, um, a lot of it relying to relying on old coal-fired power um, stations that uh, are no longer fit for purpose. Um, uh, but in the rest of, South, uh, of sub-Saharan Africa, they are not going down this coal route, Jack. There is absolutely no growth. I went actually looking for coal, coal consumption in sub-Saharan Africa. It's really, really difficult to, to determine it, but uh, just if the full extent of it. But when we see their figures collectively, they're not growing. So coal production is not working in those areas where um, uh, where there is the greatest need for um, uh, a more uh, widespread uh, electricity connection. Uh, when that when they get rich enough to afford widespread use of electricity, they'll be looking for fossil fuels to to, to power it. I, I I I don't understand that, Jack, because because one one thing that's going to drive it is the market, and and the market is telling them coal is expensive, and okay. you're going to need that about a lot five of times. You said that about five times. We can move on from that. Okay. All right. Well, well, you threw up a whole bunch of figures uh, on coal production and, uh, and and so forth as if they were just you know immutable truths, and they're really not. They're not. I mean, a, a, a renewable renewable production of electricity is increasing, and, and coal and coal will will start to will start to slide 
and I'll take have a bet with you. Within within two years, you'll see coal production reduced. All right. Um, now we're going to move on to uh, where are we? Greek elections, Jack, uh, and uh, and the all conquering Mitsotakis has uh, has been re-elected. Yeah, pretty good result, really. Um, uh, unusual for Greece. I think um, uh, I read somewhere that no ruling party in Greece has increased its share of the vote on their next election for more than 40 years. For more than 40 years. And this is the first election, I think, for Greece where there have not been the um, the impediments cast uh, passed uh, upon them by the EU in terms of debt reduction and what have you. That's, yeah. all, that's all ended now, well and truly out of the system now. Yes. All right. <clears throat> yeah, no ruling party in Greece has increased its share of the vote in an election for more than 40 years. So, so what are we talking about? Mr. Takis is a sort of centre-right party. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's in Australian terms, that's how it would be characterised, yeah. Great many Australians, great many Greek Australians, of course. I think Melbourne, the third largest Greek city in the world, Jack. Uh, I believe so. Yes, uh, believe Athens still will be first. What will be Thessalonica? Will be the just about the next. I suppose yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the number two is. Um, yes. All right. Moving on to sport, um, and uh, been a huge week in AFL in terms of coaches. Jack, there's been one uh, who uh, Alistair Clarkson, the uh, much heralded appointment at North Melbourne. He's uh, on leave indefinitely, been replaced by Brett Ratton. They're pretty bloody stiff to lose. I mean, it was their own fault against the Swans. Uh, they uh, allowed one extra interchange than is permissible, and that was a free kick awarded to Sydney in front of goal, which gave them a three-point win, Alistair Clarkson, uh, uh, according to an interview with Brett Ratton on the weekend, said he won't be far away. That Brett was just looking after the club for a little while. What do we make of uh, Alistair Clarkson's uh, leave? Obviously, under pressure over the um, uh, over the report conducted by the Hawthorne Football Club when he was coached there. The club did say they expected him back this year, certainly. Yeah, um, I would think it's so. It's a bit of a contrast to Stan. Uh, when you're an AFL coach, if you're going off uh, because you're stressed and had enough, um, you don't have to coach one last game before you go. Um, uh, that the- was an odd thing. Um, I did see an interview with a North Melbourne football player before Clarko took leave, and and uh, he sort of suggested in a in a light-hearted way that, that Clarko was a little bit mad. So he might be a bit manic in the last few days, the last few weeks. Um, uh, I've heard similar report, <laughs> reports from his time at Hawthorne. He won, won four premierships there. Yeah, true. Um, um, I, I think, I think his uh, casting aside him having to you know, him him taking leave from um, from North Melbourne. Um, this is a damning indictment of the Hawthorne Football Club and the AFL in the way they have dealt with. Um, the allegations that were made about the, uh, about Hawthorne. Um, uh, they the have, AFL can't do anything about this now. They have to simply say, we don't have the information available for us to make any determination and then leave it open to the civil courts to sort it out. Um, uh, the three, three people who 
against who the allegations have made have never ever been provided with them with the allegations and yeah. given an opportunity to respond. Not even a copy of the Hawthorne Footy Club report. Yeah, um, this is a complete a complete destruction of the uh, of proper procedure, um, and it's a it's a, a disgrace to the AFL and to the um, and to the Hawthorne Football Club. Um, the outgoing CEO Gil McLaughlin, Gil, you've got one job: fix this before you go. Got to go, and and, and how, but how can they fix it, Jane? How can they fix it? They hate being embarrassed, of course, the AFL, but they've really got to accept some embarrassment here and say, we don't have enough information to act on this. That's all they've got to say, and they they should have said it last year before well, the they squid, they, they squibbed it by appointing a, um, a, 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 an independent group to, to run this for them sure. who failed, utterly failed. Yeah, but, but, but who couldn't and, and, and uh, you know, the, the people who had made the allegations against Clarkson and, and, and two others, isn't it, um, uh, they would not present, um, they were deeply distrustful of the of the process. So, so there was no information obtained. Clarkson didn't speak, as far as I know, uh, was not asked to speak at this particular at this particular inquiry, um, and in the end, they've got nothing. So just say you've got nothing and move on. So you go right back to when Hawthorne got the report. What they should have done was said, this is ser- very serious and involves people in our club, but before we go to the AFL, we can notify the AFL that this exists, but we've got to afford procedural fairness to the people against whom the allegations are made, as well as the people making the allegations. Everybody's got to be treated transparently and fairly. Mm. And Hawthorne and the AFL have utterly failed to do that. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. Uh, Meanwhile, Jack uh, Demmer, the uh, Richmond coach, three premierships under his belt um, in a shock announcement, uh, came forward yesterday and... uh, hung his hat up uh, as coach of Richmond Footy Club and a tearful sort of thing. He just basically, from what we gather, he's just kind of out of rocket fuel, Jack. He, re- he realised he couldn't get much more out of his team. Um, it's a, uh, a high-pressure existence uh, being an AFL coach, being a sports coach generally, and sometimes people do run out of petrol tickets. Yeah, that's what he said. He, you know, he looked at his side. They had... Uh, uh, a, a one-point loss against the Bombers on the weekend. Um, they've won three from ten. It overtly doesn't sound too bad. I, I've been watching the Tigers a bit this year. I, I think they're going okay, but they've got a problem in that, and it is one of the problems that the West Coast Eagles are facing right now. When you had that period of prosperity, that's the time. That's the time when you've got to trade your senior players, start to uh, get some high draft picks coming through. Uh, but it's obviously a difficult thing to do given that there are loyalty to these players. They've given you premierships. Um, and, uh, and, and in the case of West Coast Eagles, yes, they've got a, whole, got a whole pile of injuries at the moment, but they haven't renewed and they haven't gone and got those, gotten those high draft picks when the time was right, and now they languish at the bottom of the ladder. They got beaten by 100-plus points by Hawthorne, who were second bottom. Uh, and that's how bad things can get. So that's how that's how bad things can get for Richmond if they don't start renewing. Like you can't top up at that time. Like they picked up Taranto and Hopper from the Giants, two good midfielders who'd be good servants of the club going forward for a long time. But um, 
Um, but the time really now is to get those high draft picks into the Richmond Footy Club. Yeah, it doesn't always work. Hawthorne um, uh, um, uh, pushed out um, uh, uh, the captain, um, uh, Luke Hodge, uh, and um, uh, the winger, who's a four-time premiership player, but it was all too late. Sometimes you don't get it right. But look, um, for Damien Hardwick, um, you know, all credit to him. If, if he feels like he just can't do it, and, and it's a job that's so demanding, if he can't do it anymore, he's doing the right thing rather than just phone it in for the rest of the year. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, I thought David Teague, the uh, former Carlton coach, might be coaching there because he's uh, in the um, in the football staff there. But no, there is another interim coach. Uh, uh, who will be stepping up and doing it presumably for the rest of the season? The Richmond Footy Club takes a toll on those in, uh, on those involved at the very top level. Um, uh, we've got the Test Championship really only a, really only a few weeks away. Jack at the Oval, Australia v India, uh, and then we've got the Ashes immediately after that. I see Cameron Green. It's the First Australian 100 scorer in the IPL since uh, Dave Warner. He's made a few of them. Uh, Smith's taking blinding catches, hasn't made a lot of runs. Marnus Levishane's uh, in form. It's actually looking pretty good for Australia in the afternoon. Joffre Archer will miss the whole summer. I'd suggest that'll be the end of his career. Anderson's got an injury and he's, he's older than you and me, Jack. So it'll take him a while to come back from that. And, uh, and I think there's a question mark over Ollie Robinson as well. So they've got, uh, got some issues with their bowling. Uh, Ollie Robinson bowled uh, superbly. Um, um, I think he took, I think he's, uh, I saw he was ditching up Steve Smith in the nets. Uh, and then in the match, um, uh, he skittled uh, Lanus Labush- Manus Labuschagne very nicely as well. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a fair way out for the Ashes. But yeah, it looks, it's looking good for Australia. The, uh, the, I don't know whether you saw the green innings, but. Um, it was a, a, a masterpiece. Uh, yeah, look, there's not much that boy cannot do. He's still a very young man, of course, and he's building hundreds in the IPL. He's just a yeah, cricketer. I think it was 100 off 54, I think. Um, he's, he's uh, big unit, mate. He's very, very hard. And and I, I, I seriously think we just have, we're just we not going to see. His problem's always going to be management. You don't want to let him play too much short stuff. Um, because he's, you know, he's, he, he just gives you so much. Um, you know, he can be that fifth bowler, uh, and uh, and and he can also come in the middle order and belt a hundred. He's just, a, he's an absolute jewel, Jack. These players are so rare. Um, so that takes us through that. We uh, did also see in the Premier League now a poor old Arsenal uh, being swept aside by Man City. Man City have got the the title, and uh, they've got uh, two more to get, uh, <coughs> Champions League and uh, the FA Cup. Uh, still uh, still in the offing for them. Uh, Arsenal have been the butt of many jokes, but I reckon they've done okay finishing second. Um, yeah, I, I don't think um, um, the Man City players are going to be picked up by the Hong Kong ICAC for... Um, <laughs> uh, for <laughs> They're on a few bubbles. I mean, look, one of the disasters there, Jack, is Chelsea, who are finishing in the bottom second half. They've spent over, oh, crikey, I can't remember how many millions of dollars recruiting players, and it just hasn't worked. Um, uh, They've been one of the big spenders in the Premier League. Not that 
clubs like Man City and Man United and Liverpool aren't spending big too, but they've one, been one of the biggest spenders. And uh, there they are sitting, uh, sitting in the bottom half of the table. That's a disaster. Perhaps and that's all because of back. the Ukraine invasion, or the invasion of Ukraine, of course, isn't it? They, they might need the Russian bloke back. What's his name? Abramovich. <laughs> Abramovich. Abramovich, yes, indeed. Uh, NRL, too. we just got to quickly touch on that. Too. It's just such an incredible season. West Tigers, what they score, 66. Um, smash the Cowboys. And they're on the bottom of the ladder, Jack. So that's uh, a very even competition. 66 points is about um, eight weeks um, uh, a quota for the West Tigers, isn't it? <laughs> so, well, they're no longer on the bottom. Uh, I think that uh, that now goes to the Dragons, who I think might have had a win on the weekend too. Um, but um, the West Tigers, uh, when, when you go to the bottom side, just, you know, the, the really sad thing about the AFL was the uh, Eagles-Hawthorne game at Utahs in Launceston where, uh, where the Hawks uh, really beat them up. So that tells you your bottom side is just an easy beat. And, uh, but not now NRL. I keep saying this. Um, Penrith are starting to find a little bit of form, but really form is very, very fleeting in the NRL at the moment. Yep. All right, well, that takes us to the end of the show. What do you got for well, us, Jack? Well, well, Did Cats do any ironing on over the weekend? I've got something um, here before we go. It's from New York. Um, not all the bad ideas come from California. Um, this one's from New York. Um, they've got a lot of problems there with shoplifting. In fact, sort of semi-organised shoplifting, sort of looting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's 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 organised stuff, mate. Yeah. Well, there, well, there's two separate things going on. There's some just random looting and some organised shoplifting. Anyway, the, um, the the New York Police Department have announced, and uh, the New York City has announced a, a new crackdown, which includes giving first-time offenders intervention programs instead of prosecution. De-escalation training for retail employees. Um, I think that means you don't build the crap out of someone who's trying to steal stuff. Um, establishing neighbourhood retail watch groups to share information about a theft in real time with one another and the police. And installing kiosks in stores <laughs> to connect would-be thieves with social service programs. Oh, that's 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 a terrific idea, Jack. Uh, I think this is the peak of the underlying causes of crime uh, 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 argument, isn't it? Really, yeah. This is this is as good as it gets. Um, well, we the, we, we the, saw the, 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 the. Go sorry, go on. The, 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 the lieutenant commander in charge of def- detectives put it this way: so when people come in that we're just about to steal, they won't, because they realise that stealing yeah. is a source of a different problem for them. So they're going to use the kiosk to access social services. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's just a – that's not well, going to happen. We, we did touch on this a few weeks ago because the figures came out and um, uh, it was a very high proportion of shoplifting had been committed by a very small number of people. Yeah, um, a, a, about 30% of all the shoplifting. So that's 250 people who were arrested 2,500 times. Yeah. And, and that would indicate to me that there is an organised, at least uh, one and probably more, organised yeah. rackets of shoplifting yeah. who so are there's probably not going to be going, look, I'm supposed to knock off a certain number of Gantt shirts today, uh, but I'll just pop into the kiosk and have a pie. 
Well, no, pop into the kiosk and sign up for um, uh, uh, some rehabilitation program uh, provided by an NGO. Yeah, they maybe have a foot long there as well too. So, yeah, no, to, to look, uh, you, we can just see some ideas that are just never going to make it and that is one of them just going to be a disaster. They've obviously got rackets going on there um, and uh, almost certainly the organised crime boys will be thereabouts, Jack. It's a, yeah. a time-honoured profession, um, uh, professional shoplifting, Jack, and they're very, very very good at Australians are very very good at it Jack I don't know if you've ever heard about the kangaroo gang in the UK used yes. to knock off jewellery stores and so forth just one time they, they brought in a woman who was wearing a long coat took it off nothing underneath she was standing there naked pandemonium pandemonium ensued while they just helped them and, and while this, this enormous distraction was going on they just helped themselves to the uh, the goodies on display in the store and then left very quietly. Very smart boys, the kangaroo gang. Yep. All right, mate. Thank you very much for your time today. We've gone a little bit long. We do apologise for that, listeners. But we had so much to get through. And uh, and as usual, we just want to say, uh, like Lawrence Belcom, who dropped us a line during the week and uh, wanted to correct, correct me on Toyotas and so forth, please, please feel free to contribute towards the program. Uh, and drop us a line. Uh, you can get Jack on Hong Kong Jack at Substack.com. Correct me if that's wrong. Yeah, you can. You, and you can find my letter to Stan Grant. Oh, you've got a letter to Stan Grant in there. Good stuff. Um, and uh, you can get me on Jack the Insider uh, or at Jack the Insider. My DMs are always open and and uh, often getting filled with uh, young ladies uh, wanting to flog me crypto, which is nice. Um um, but yes, uh, we, we do look forward to you. And Ray, Baseman, we will next week look at your view that you've now sent to me on several occasions um, that the National Party uh, is the cart leading the Liberal Party horse around. I think you might have something there, Ray. We're going to have a look at that for you next week. And thanks very much for all our listeners, and we'll speak to you next week. See ya. Cheers.